Okay, people. Uh, anybody any um, thoughts on what makes what makes people do the right thing? Is it commands or story? I mean, I know you do because of your selfishness and things like that. But any kind of what what has a positive effect on um, what 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 has a transformative effect? What makes people do the right thing? Okay. Anybody got a cannon within the cannon? Job. That's a good canon within the canon. Mm. Mine's Ecclesiastes. Some of you don't like Ecclesiastes, so we'll talk about that later. <laughs> the Psalms. Psalms. That's good. Mm. The New Testament. <laughs> That's the normal Christian one, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The only person who doesn't have the New Testament as the canon within the canon is Jesus. <laughs> Okay, uh, let me go up to the next page in the, in the uh, syllabus, which is, says at the top, factors that shape Israel's rule for life. Trying to think about that question, that the fact that there is this diversity within the way the scriptures talk, um, then uh, I um, suggest this kind of grid, um, that with these two, ax- these two axes, the way, the way I picture it is something like this. Um, you'll see at the top it says, uh, in the Garden of Eden, on top of Mount Sinai, on the Mount of Beatitudes, on the top of Mount Wilson. Um, there is God in God's holiness, um, uh, unaffected by the world, able to lay down what humanity is supposed to be like. Uh, and I put underneath there some of the things that God's really keen on in that connection. Uh, the first of which is mono-Yahwism. You've never heard of that, have you? Yes, we know what mono-Yahwism is. Not really. No, not so much. You've heard of monotheism. You thought that's what you believed in. Well, it is what you believe in. I mean, it's true, monotheism. But um, the Old Testament isn't, very, isn't so bothered about the question, how many gods are there? Are there one or two or six or eleven? What the, the Old Testament is more interested in is, who is God? It's more interesting in the, in the fact that Yahweh is God as opposed to Marduk being God or Baal being God or something like that. So mono-Yahwism kind of nuances the idea of monotheism by saying um, there's, there's only one person who is worth taking seriously as God and that's Yahweh. So mono-Yahwism, fairness, generosity, joy, egalitarianism, Separation from uh, from the from the world in its uh, pervertedness, beauty, community, some things that God thinks are really important. But then at the bottom of that axis, there's a list of the things that are around in Israel's culture on the left hand side: marriage breakdown, slavery, poverty, patriarchy. And there in the right hand parallel column are things that God sees when He looks down from Mount Wilson at the LA Basin and sees marriage breakdown and racism, and poverty, and pollution. And the things that God says by way of obligation, in Old Testament and in New Testament, have to uh, all sit somewhere uh, on that axis, in terms of, are they they expressing God's ideal will, or are they expressing the way that God is needing to make allowance for that human hardness of heart that's expressed in those realities at the bottom? 
So Deuteronomy 6.5, which is the, um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, that clearly sits right at the top of that axis. Um, Deuteronomy 24, which is the um, rule about giving a divorce uh, certificate that Jesus, uh, the Pharisees talk about, goes at the bottom of that axis. In principle, you could set things in Old and New Testament at different points on that axis according to how, how far they were expressing God's ideal will and how far they were making allowance for human hardness of heart. The horizontal axis then works a different way. Because um, on the left-hand side are what I've called contextual givens. That is, there are things about the context that the rules have got to make allowance for. For instance, in Israel they had flat roofs. So there's a law that says you have to have a um, wall around your roof. Now, in England we nearly always have pitched roofs. So the idea of having a, a, a wall around your roof is really stupid. Here, quite often, you do have a wall around. And our condo has a flat roof, and, and it's got a wall around. Um, so wh whether you need rules about safety on your roof, and what kind of rules you need, there is according to the context. It's a barter economy. Uh, you've got the division between pastoral and urban. So there are issues that laws need to talk about. And in our context, there are some givens, too. Um, the uh, things, things that are the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do Need to, need to make allowance for contextual givens like multi-ethnicity, uh, informality, the importance of technology. The other side of that horizontal uh, line are what I've called contextual vehicles. That is, those are things that you can use in order to reach the culture. So, sacrifices and tithes and taboos, none of those were things that God especially invented for Israel to have. They were all things that other societies have and still do have today um, that God then utilised in order to bring home God's message, God's priorities. And in a semi-analogous um, way, then in our context, uh, the importance of comedy and music and theatre are things that can be used in order to express what God's um, expectations, what God's gospel is in our context. And I'm suggesting then that again, the kind of things it says in the um, Old Testament law, but also elsewhere in Scripture, you can plot on that horizontal axis according to in what way it's making allowance uh, for things about the context that need to have um, things said to it, and in what way it's using things in the context in order to uh, address the needs of the culture. Um, so in principle, you could plot things out of um, different parts of Scripture um, in relation to the vertical axis and in relation to the horizontal axis. Um, and when you do that, that helps you to see something of why the laws are the way they are, uh, and also might help you a bit in seeing what kind of thing need to be said in our context, and what kind of thing can be said in our context. Because sometimes, we, as, as is the case with egalitarian relationships between the sexes, we can probably get nearer the, the top of the Mount of Beatitudes and the top of Mount Sinai and so on, than they could have done um, in... Um, Deuteronomy uh, though Deuteronomy wasn't bad that was a bad choice because Deuteronomy was better than some of the other uh, uh, Old Testament books but with other areas um, we, we have a hard time getting even near their standard um, a student once asked when I was having some discussion of this as I put it three lines from the bottom if scripture is inspired why is it so sexist um, and this relates too to that question about um, 
why are there so many stories about men dying and hardly any stories about women dying in the Bible? Because it's a patriarchal society. Because it was the men who counted. Because it was the uh, men's um, uh, leadership uh, and action um, that made a difference. Because the leaders that God chose were mostly men. And so they end up with more stories. They aren't, the stories aren't there because they're men's stories, but they're stories because of the roles that those men played. Because in that context, God is working with those realities, the androcentricity and the patriarchy uh, of the culture, um, in, o- in order to get some other things done. Um, and so, with regard to that area, we may be able to uh, get nearer to what God wants on the top of the mountain, ne- get nearer to what it says in Genesis 1 and 2, um, than they were able to do in scriptural times. Your, uh, God is involved in compromise. That sounds a wicked thing. Compromise? It's wicked. Well, no. Um, I've mentioned there a book by a guy called Stephen Carter, um, who before, there was, uh, before when Barack Obama was only a, um, wasn't even a tiny glint really in anybody's eyes, Stephen Carter was the guy I hoped might one day stand for, pres- for the presidency. Uh, he is an African-American Christian professor of law in Yale, um, and uh, in, in one of his books, he talks about the way in which Lincoln made compromises over slavery. Um, and uh, he's got this, I hope I can remember this illustration um, with not having the text in front of me, but it's along the lines of, um, if, if there's a snake in a child's bed, uh, you, you, you might not um, bring a club to the bed and go zonk, because you might kill the child as well as the snake. Um, on the other hand, if the child isn't in the bed and you see a snake, then you can come and zonk it. Uh, now, when they are coping in Lincoln's day, with the, when Lincoln is trying to work out a policy with regard to slavery, if, if, if Lincoln insists um, on the abolition of slavery, then the Union may collapse, the Union uh, may die, um, and uh, in th- that's, that will be a bad thing, um, not least for people who are enslaved. Um, and so it was better to compromise on slavery in the short term in order to achieve the long-term aims. Um, and that's the key question Carter suggests with regard to compromise. Um, are, you, are you open about what you're doing, and are you clear about the goals that you're seeking to reach, even though you're making, compromise, um, make, making compromises in the short term, in order to get uh, to those goals that you have identified? Um, and within scripture itself, God is doing something a bit like that. Uh, within scripture, then, slavery provides an example. So over the page, I've talked about that on page 44. Uh, I've, I've put as a heading there the word slavery, uh, though the first thing I need to talk about is the problem of the word. And I think two-thirds of our problem in discussing this issue in Old Testament and New Testament is the problem of the word. Uh, when we think about a slave, well, a slave is somebody who is somebody else's property, um, and this other person uh, can do what they like with their property. Uh, that idea of slavery um, is more or less not present at all in the Old Testament. It's actually, um, in, indeed, a it's 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 a Europe that that notion of slavery is a West is a European idea, not just a modern one. Because it was, it, it was a reality in uh, Greece and Rome before it was a reality 
uh, in the way that Britain and America ran things uh, for several centuries. But it's essentially European practice is the notion of slavery um, as owning somebody else and being able to do what you like with them. Uh, in the Middle East, in Israel and in other Middle Eastern countries, they didn't have slavery in that form. Um, it's then significant that thus that Hebrew has only the one word, ebed, which covers both what we would call a slave, but also what we would call a servant. Um, so, for instance, when um, Abraham sends his trusted servant to go and find a wife for Isaac, the word that's, that's, um, that comes there to describe this trusted uh, agent uh, of Abraham's, uh, is it, the word that's used to describe him is the word that in other contexts is often translated slave. Now, if in the Old Testament, every time you come across the word slave, you substitute the word servant, uh, you um, will, may well find that the resonances of the uh, way it talks come out quite differently. Significantly, Greek does have two words. I say significantly because that reflects the fact that um, uh, in the Mediterranean countries, uh, slavery was a reality. So uh, the New Testament has got the word doulos uh, for slave, as well as, the wo as well as words such as pice, the word uh, for servant. Um, it's then quite solemn that the New Testament is quite happy to describe us uh, as God's slaves, and Paul will describe himself as God's slave, not just as God's servant. And just to confuse you, well not to confuse you, but not kind of naughtily, to make you feel these translators are really wicked. Even when the New Testament uses the word slave, uses the word doulos, the translations are inclined to um, use the English word servant um, in translation, which lets us off the toughness of what it is actually that Paul says when Paul talks about as, as slaves of Christ, not just servants of Christ. The, the word um, ebed in the Old Testament, uh, which would be, is the word that's often translated slave, but I'm saying is closer to servant, um, is even closer, really, to the word worker. It's a social or a relational term. Um, a, an ebed is somebody who relates to a master. It's a social relational term in that sense. And uh, in lots of ways, being an ebed um, is a great thing. Because uh, it, if, if you are a servant, then you're obliged to serve a master, but your master also has obligations to you. You can call upon um, the, uh, the master to protect you. And so often in the relationship between people and God, uh, in, not least in the Psalms, people will call upon, servants will call upon God as their master. Uh, it's a, a, a relational notion that thus can work in your favour and not, doesn't just work against you as the notion of slave and slave owner would be, like, would be likely to do. Jesus, when he talks about divorce and uh, marriage, notes how from the beginning it was not so, uh, the uh, making of allowance for divorce. And you could say exactly the same thing about slavery, servitude. In Genesis 1 and 2, there aren't any slaves or servants. There aren't any masters and there aren't any servants. Everybody has authority, all serve. That's vividly illustrated by the fact that the man and the woman, uh, as I probably noted when we talked about, we were talking about women, uh, both have authority over the world. Uh, they're called to go and subdue it. Uh, and in the Garden of Eden story, uh, humanity is created to serve the earth. There are no human beings who serve each other. 
um, perhaps it's presupposed that everybody serves each other, but there are no people who are the designated masters and the designated servants. Everybody is, in a sense, a master. Everybody is, in a sense, a servant. Uh, but then it goes wrong in that passage in Exodus um, 3 that we looked at. And that's when something like servitude comes in. When God says um, to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Um, and you get further references to um, the toughness of the human lot uh, in the story in the run-up to, to, uh, to the flood. Um, and then after the flood, when things go wrong between Noah and his son somehow, and he ends up saying, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. But again, you ought to say, so we ought to say servants, really. Cursed be Canaan, lowest of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by Yahweh my God be Shem, let Canaan be his servant. May God make space for Japheth, let him live in the tents of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. All that comes about as a result of the being sin in the world, not in the way that God uh, set things up. Uh, Abraham then is somebody who has lots of servants, um, as later on, for instance, do Gideon and Boaz and Job. Um, good guys, in other words, are slave owners, except that they're not slaves, they're, um, uh, they're servants. Um, Genesis 24 is the passage that talks about the responsibility that Abraham's servant has to find um, a wife for Isaac. Uh, the rules in Exodus chapter 21, uh, which are the kind of rules that then get people worried about slavery. Um, uh, set limits um, on the uh, kind of way in which um, a person who has servants can um, treat their, uh, their, their servants uh, and, and how masters have to make compensation for the ill-treatment of their servants. The core, what, why are some people masters and some people servants? Well, there are various things, that various, various kinds of circumstances that cause that. Often it'll be economic pressures. Um, your farm, uh, you, you, either because you're lazy or because you're incompetent or because you have bad luck. Um, this year, your farm doesn't produce enough grain and other foods for you to last until next year's harvest. So what you do in, what you do in effect is sell your labor to um, the guy in the next farm. Um, you become his servant. He takes over your land. Uh, he supplies you with grain um, and uh, other necessities for the coming year. Um, and you, um, in return, work for him for a period of years as his servant. Uh, it's personal and economic pressures to judge from the rules in the Torah that often cause servitude then. Sometimes it can be war. People get captured and they end up as slaves, servants, as a result of that, which in effect is what happens with the Canaanites uh, when they become servants of the Israelites. Israelite servants then uh, are uh, like workers. They are part of the family uh, as, as workers. They, they can be lifelong servants like that man in Genesis 24. 
Um, but they may end up in servitude because uh, of debt, as the next, refer the next references talk about that, uh, in connection with the farm failing and they're not being able to um, provide enough for themselves and for their family for the next year. The New Testament uh, is naturally more aware of something like slavery because um, part of its context, well, its entire context, uh, is the Roman Empire. And because uh, in the Greek and the Roman and the succeeding, uh, some later European empires, um, there, there is slavery. It's um, noteworthy that there's no repudiation of slavery in the New Testament. The Essenes, who were another crowd alongside the Pharisees and the Sadducees in New Testament times, did repudiate, did repudiate slavery, uh, but the, um, the New Testament itself doesn't do that. Uh, people often refer to Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And that does establish that whether you're a slave or a free person, you, come, you get right with God on the same basis. But it doesn't say that the gospel removes the difference between slave and free. Uh, and the gospel doesn't remove the difference between being male and female. Um, and it doesn't actually remove the difference between, between Jew and Greek. So that declaration doesn't say anything about the eventual, doesn't imply the eventual abolition of slavery. It only indicates that slaves come to Christ on the same basis um, as free people do. Um, Colossians 3 tells slaves to obey their earthly masters in everything, uh, which is, seems pretty tough, really. It does also say that masters should treat their slaves justly and fairly because they know that they've got a master in heaven, though it doesn't tell them to free their slaves, uh, which is what the um, Torah says that, that they... Um, ought to do um, in not keeping them as servants for more than six years. Titus, tell slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. They are not to talk back, not to pilfer, but to show complete and perfect fidelity so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God our Saviour. And there's no exhortation to, um, no equivalent exhortation to masters there. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2 Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference not only those who are kind and gentle but also those who are harsh um, and again there's no equivalent exhortation to, uh, to masters there and then Philemon uh, the, the epistle that deals most directly with, with um, slavery in the sense that it presupposes the story about what happened to a particular slave whom Paul knows and whom Paul is sending back to his master. One of the things that's striking about all that is that the, whereas the Old Testament attempts to formulate some rules that would govern the social order with regard to servitude, slavery... The New Testament has got no rules to um, govern the social order. When we were talking about canon within the canon, I heard you guys muttering about, well, the New Testament obviously speaking more closely to issues that concern us. Well, it can, yeah, it does, but they tend to be interpersonal, individual issues. They aren't issues about how to uh, run the society. Um, and so over this question, as, about, as over some others, 
there's some complementarity about the way the two, the two Testament talks with regard to slavery. Um, the New Testament has got great things to say about what, what love looks like um, and what submission looks like, uh, but it doesn't have proposals about how um, society ought to order itself. So implications of looking at that stuff in the last couple of minutes. The importance of understanding different social contexts. Uh, you need to see the difference between the social context in which uh, the Old Testament talks about servitude, uh, in which the New Testament talks about the position of slaves, where, as we saw with the position of women the other week, uh, perhaps there's a danger uh, that slaves become too revolutionary and too uppity and disturb the social order and thereby bring dis, um, disrepute upon the church. And so the New Testament thinks it's more important that slaves should be willing to work within their slavery than that they should cause trouble. Differences within, uh, between contexts within Scripture, but also differences between the cultural context there, uh, the, the cultural social context um, of British and American slavery, and our own um, social and cultural context that's influenced by that, by that last one, but also influenced by the awareness, as, as, I, put on, the awareness as, I, as I put on the sheet, um, of freedom being an ultimate value for us. Freedom isn't an ultimate value in Scripture. Uh, it is for us. Rights aren't an ultimately important thing in Scripture. They are for us. Uh, and we need to see differences in the way that people look at things as a result of those differences. Note ways in which the biblical assumptions confront our assumptions... We just take it for granted that the natural thing is to have a job in which you are employed by somebody who buys your labour. In the Bible, at least in the Old Testament, that would be regarded as really weird. Who wants to, be, to have to sell themselves as an employee to somebody? The ideal is to be working for yourself in the family business. It's a quite different way of thinking about work, of which the talk of, um, uh, of servitude is, uh, is part. And note finally how uh, that, that, that God on the top of Mount Wilson, um, God's vision on the top of Mount Wilson, is all having authority, but also all serving, rather than that some should be masters and some should be servants. Which you might need in order, in order to organise society, and even to organise church, and even to organise the seminary. Um, but it's not how things look when, when God is sitting back in his armchair on the top of Mount Sinai or Mount Wilson. All have authority, all serve. Go away. Come back in 20 minutes. I am the master. <laughs>